Hi, I'm Montenero, creator and artist of Death Sentence uh, Cyberpunk. You can find me on Montenero.com, Montenero at uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And you are watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by a returning guest with an amazing series back then, and it's still amazing now, but the amazing series called Death Sentence Liberty, joined by the ever-talented Monty Nero, coming back to us with Death Sentence Cyberpunk. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. Nice to see you again. Thanks for having me on. It's good having you back on. For those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person, tell us who you are and what you're bringing to Two Geeks Talking. Montenegro, writer, artist of comic books, mostly self-published, creator-owned comic books. That's why I got into comics 10 years ago is to do my own stuff, realize my own vision, try and do something new and interesting as uh, far as my talents will allow. Yeah, Death Sentence has been going for 10 years initially sort of written and co-created by me and I did the covers and the character designs. I started drawing it myself. The last three issues have also been drawn by me as well as um, written and lettered by me. Um, And now I've taken that forward with a new concept, uh, 100 Years in the Future, which is a cyberpunk take on the sort of themes of the story. I'm always fascinated not only by your art style, but your creativity as well. And, And Death Sentence Liberty, if those that haven't picked that up, it's an amazing series in itself. So I can't wait to see this newest iteration and, and your creativity with that. From a creative genesis standpoint here, what sparked the creation of Death Sentence Cyberpunk, weaving together cyberpunk, film noir, and a murder mystery? Really, if you think about it, I've been doing Death Sentence for 10 years, and it's uh, very focused on ideas and stories and characters and themes that I invented 10 years ago. And then I've developed them and built the world up over that time. And there's been obviously lots of new characters and new themes introduced and stuff. But it's basically 10 years of doing the same take on the situation in a contemporary style. I mean, obviously, when you're drawing it, that means a lot of drawing of contemporary locations and streets and clothes and vehicles and things. What I found in the last couple of issues that I drew was the so-called harder stuff which is like the crazy sort of like three-point perspectives over a city with loads of buildings and loads and loads of characters rioting and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. I actually enjoyed drawing those a lot more than, you know, the sort of standard stuff that people might enjoy drawing. And then after I'd done sort of three issues of, of drawing it, I was just really hankering to draw something different. So that was really the reason why I wanted to change the sort of style and the look of what I was what I was making. Also, I think after 10 years, um, I, I enjoy the character design side of it and designing like the look and the feel of the comic, because I think that's why Death Sentence has lasted 10 years and why it's still popular. There's a stylish sort of cohesive feel to the characters and the comic. I just felt the need to sort of do that again and do a whole new set of characters, a whole new set of designs. And, you know, you're drawing these characters that 10 years ago, they were quite kind of ahead of their time. And now I want to do that again and have characters that sort of, you know, were a bit interesting and appealing to like today's audience. Just the sort of thing that I'd come up with now rather than then. And that ties in with just my love of cyberpunk, sci-fi, detective stories, murder mysteries. And of course, over those 10 years, I've written down so many ideas and notes and plots for stories that don't fit into the existing death sentence framework 
you know, because they're sort of cyberpunk or they're sci-fi or their ideas for cyberpunk worlds or they're sort of like murder mysteries that aren't going to fit into the plot I've got worked out for Death Sentence. So, so it's just a chance to bring all those things together and do a new comic that's really exciting visually and sort of thematically. The cyberpunk genre itself is a fun area to to live in because we've seen Blade Runner. We've seen obviously Cyberpunk 2077, the video game. People don't understand that your city itself is kind of a character in its own right in that respect, which is just incredible because you're so focused. Sometimes you're so focused on the characters, but you don't realize that the city is that that third character that you never realize. Yeah, exactly. The tract, uh, as it's known. So there's no state. There's no country or countries in this future. The tract is where the population of the future are living it's a kind of living city in the sense that biotech has progressed to the state where the infrastructure of the building is, you know, to all intents and purposes, alive, powers on sort of natural energy. It's almost like um, taking on food and, um, you know, needs nutrients in order to function properly. And you get these root pipes kind of like all over everything which go into the earth beneath the city. You know, and some of these are huge and some of these are, are smaller tributaries. They're full of this like sort of glowing kind of blue substance, which kind of like gives power to the city. And it gets its power source basically from the earth beneath the city, which is basically where all the dead people are from um, the pandemic virus that um, I was writing about in Death Sentence, you know, ravaged the, ravaged the planet. It's basically a living city, the remnants of people and the city is powered by all the all the dead people beneath the city uh, are being drawn up and powering this new city, um, and um, the the buildings can actually move like very sort of sort of uh, subtly, um, and they're kind of like slightly competitive with each other. So they're kind of like in the same way that plants kind of grow in a rainforest to try and reach the sunlight. They're kind of like the sort of root pipes are kind of like um, you know tangling each other and trying to sort of um, get as much sort of power for. There and obviously this is all like controlled carefully with the technology of the time within like limits that are useful in that you want something to actually find power the appropriate to what it needs to do for itself within a certain sort of radius that you've prescribed for that building that's actually what you're you've designed it to do but then obviously there's sometimes malfunctions which is where the entertaining kind of stories come in and that's part of the fabric of the plot of the of the story we should talk about the actual plot of the story we haven't kind of touched on that but what is the plot of of death sentence cyberpunk it's basically about everybody in the future is in the same way there's no state there's no real so there's no state controlled organizations like the police or you know the fire service everything in the future is basically a gig economy so people that are working as police are basically just freelancers that are on a sort of gig-based hiring and firing structure. And a lot of it is based on how well their case is trending on social media as far as what kind of resources they can get for solving that crime. So obviously the more dramatic and important the crime, the more kind of people are worried about it, the more kind of eyes are on it, the more resources you get, the more pressure there is to solve the case quickly. Uh, you'll also get these, you've got a sort of instant democracy situation with social media, um, people voting all the time and all kinds of things. And that can lead to some very quick changes in the actual laws governing the whole city, which can be a, it's, it's like a massive problem for 
someone like Cram, who's the, uh, the 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 detective, the main one of the main characters, because he's got a very firm set of principles and he doesn't agree with what's going on with a lot of this technology in the cities. He doesn't go along with it, so he does. He's not very popular, so he doesn't get any resources, and he's got all these crimes he wants to solve that he's really passionate about, but he can't he can't do that. Done this sort of long term surveillance on something that's kind of very personal to him, and he gets a sort of hit on it where he discovers this really disturbing sex crime where there's all these kind of like these people that have been they're called skin freaks and they basically want to make love naturally which you can't do in the future another plot point is everybody wears husks which is an invisible membrane that completely isolates you from the natural environment and the reason is that these pandemic viruses were so deadly that people have had to do that to survive so you get implanted with this biotech you know at birth and then it never leaves you so you spend your whole life basically not able to touch someone naturally or and you get all these enhanced kind of sensations from the husk that you're wearing so you know it makes things uh, ostensibly kind of more um exciting you know sex is more exciting sensations flavors whatever but it's all basically artificial and obviously you get desensitized to that so that just becomes normal so sort of uh, something as uh, mundane as like you know making love to someone naturally it's like very unappealing to 99% of the population and people think that people that do that are really really freakish and they're disgusting because they're spreading viruses and they're sort of hunted down quite quite ruthlessly when he finds this case it it stirs a lot of interest in the city and he finds himself with all these resources and all this attention and he's got to solve this case really quick the public and certain other parties in the city want him to wrap it up in a very sort of obvious way and he thinks that it's not as complicated as that because he discovers this conspiracy that's surrounding the virus and the way these people died and he wants to investigate that it's all just about the conflict there's lots of original elements to it i just really like a lot of traditional detective and murder mystery and film noir you know cyberpunk and i want to incorporate that kind of atmosphere and that kind of feel into it whilst also doing like original ideas and original plot points and things nice oh that that's amazing it, it sounds like it's going to be a wild ride from from page one to the final page obviously when you did death sentence liberty you had multiple issues is this going to be the same case for death sentence cyberpunk yeah, the initial story introduces all this is three books. They're each like at least 44 pages, but they might be slightly longer than that, depending on how it works. I mean, with the first Death Sentence book, I added 10 pages just because I felt it needed it to tell the story properly. And I think that really paid off because obviously it cost me quite a lot of the time. You know, I think the fact the book's still selling now is because I actually told the story with a really satisfying ending. So if I need to put 10 extra pages in to do that, I'll do that. So that's always the case with all my books. But yeah, the way it's got scoped out, it's basically 44 plus pages per book. And then that'll tell this initial story. One of the issues I had with the comic was which story to tell first, because I've got lots of stories worked out for this cyberpunk uh, detective environment. The way I decided to do it in the end was initially I just got this whole plot worked out, which is basically this is one long story that's like a film. And then I thought the way I like to tell stories anyway in comic book form is like so that you know there's a satisfying story in each story in each comic anyway and then I thought like well I've got so many of these other little nice little stories in each book you'll get like a what seems like a complete story there'll be like a finish mm -hmm. to that particular book that's like oh yeah satisfying that wrapped up this thing and that thing so each story is basically going to form part of a bigger narrative it's a little bit like some of the Hellboy stuff oh, yeah. where you get some longer stories and some short stories 
And a lot of it kind of um, all ties in with the same villain or the same case or something, same characters. So that's definitely an influence on how I've approached sort of telling these stories. I love intertwining stories. I love the fact that you're building up the world into a larger scale than what one issue can hold. So I'm glad there's more than one issue to see there. Were you recently in a, a motor accident? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a big part of the art of the book. Yeah, it was quite nasty. It was sort of 70 mile an hour on the motorway. Someone just massively overspeeding just came into the back of me and then like spanned me across four lanes. We both span across four lanes. It was just pure luck that no one else uh, hit us while that was happening. I was in the third lane of four and uh, he hit me so hard that we both basically ended up right near the hard shoulder, which is on the inside line. From that point of view, once I'd um, seen what was happening, I was able to get off the motorway and onto the hard shoulder very quickly. And then I was able to get him off the hard shoulder, off the oh. motorway and onto the hard shoulder quickly as well. Very um, dramatic. The car was, you know, obviously a write-off. Then there was also the whole situation of dealing with the police, insurance companies, which was nightmarish. The whole insurance situation was if you have this kind of accident, it was just, it was just horrendous. And it dragged on for like six months and stuff. It was just really horrible. Well, all that was going on. What I found was when I got home, went up to my studio and I just started drawing. You know, I had the script that I'd worked out and I just started drawing it with a pencil on paper. And it was just, I didn't even think about it. It was just like, I didn't even know what I was going to do with this. It was just keeping me sort of calm and centered, blocking out everything that had happened. Found it really cathartic over the next few months while all this sort of stuff was going on just to be lose myself in drawing the comic just to put as much of myself into it as I could as much sort of humanity into it as I could lots of detail you know just lots of effort into like compositions and the storytelling because obviously a big thing in my head was like I might not have been here I could easily not have been here it just really due to luck I could have easily not have been here to do this so I want to make a real statement that I'm still here and I can do this stuff and I want it to be, you know, something really special so that I'm not wasting my time doing it because comics are hard. Comics are hard work for any artist, anybody that makes out a comic, uh, makes draws a comic, you know, it doesn't matter how good it looks. It's a hell of a lot of work to do that amount of art. What I found is if I do that work and it looks good and people say it's good, that's one thing. But if I then put the extra effort in to go the extra mile and do something really amazing on each page and with each panel, just something that's like a bit clever or a bit interesting, really eye-popping, that extra time is worth an enormous amount to me as like an artist as far as how I feel about what I'm making. And then hopefully as well to other people see what I'm doing and kind of connect with it. Because I'm writer-artist, every sort of scene or panel or situation i can kind of interpret as i'm drawing it i can change it i can make it better like there was a scene that was i'd written it you know happening in a sort of like futuristic factory sort of situation and then i realized that actually the way the story what needed to happen in the story and the interaction between the characters it could happen just as well in zero gravity so i designed this kind of like zero gravity chamber where which is used for recreation and then that just makes everything that happens in that scene just so much more interesting because it's happening you know, vertically rather than in the traditional kind of horizontal. You can draw all this really interesting kind of tech, which is another thing that I really wanted to do is just draw loads of really cool cyberpunk technology and design things, you know, in the future, weird machines and stuff. So I can do all that because it's like a zero G chamber. 
yeah. and like I can just decide what that looks like. So it just makes everything that happens visually interesting and and I try and make lots of widescreen eye popping like pages and panels. The way I sort of pace the action. Death Sentence has always been like a very fast paced. And the other thing I like is I just really like I really like just the way visual storytelling happens on the page and the way, you know, you get a really nice flow to a page, your eyes across it and stuff. And that's always been like one of my strengths, even back when I wasn't like the best artist, it would still be a really nice bit of storytelling as far as visually, the way it would all flow. I really enjoyed doing that. It's just like getting the action to flow in a really kinetic kind of powerful way that really pleases the eye when you're reading it. There should be lots of wow moments when you read the comic. The one thing I enjoy about your art style, the fact that you can go full color, but you can also do black and white. And in this particular comic, you've really hinted at the, the blue tints and the neon, and you've been really like focusing on, in on that. And I think it just adds another level to a black and white comic. It just looks incredible. It just draws the eyes to so many different things, but you're still focused in on on what the characters are doing and you're still focused on the, the little details that you're adding to it. I think it just adds that nice extra touch that I don't think many comics do these days. Thank you. Yeah. As a sort of designer, I really wanted to have like some kind of original look to the book. And that's very difficult because there's so many people doing cyberpunk and there's so many great artists out there that to have something that you just look at it and you think like, oh, right, that's that's Death Sentence Cyberpunk. I can tell just by looking at the panel. I can tell just by looking at the art. That's the trick of it. So trying to find that and developing that was a, a key part of it. And then also that comes from just making it more and more personal and just using the tools that I naturally use without, you know, if I'm just left to my own devices, what would I pick up and draw with? So that's things like a pencil, you know, mangaka, fine brush pen, and then like inks, washes, watercolor, Copics. And then on top of that, some acrylic paint where you can sort of white out things. And generally you build up from the white page, you sort of add tints and sort of gradually build darknesses. And there's a lot of heavy, heavy shadow, as you'd expect with a noir murder mystery, a lot of heavy black, a lot of heavy shadow. But then once you've done that, then you can also work back into that and add sort of airbrush or kind of hatching or something to sort of like carve away at it to add... Um, lighter tones onto the dark and then you just get this really nice feel and depth to the world um and then it, what i found was actually less is less is more powerful the, the sort of more kind of restrained i am with my color palette and then you get these flashes of eerie blue like lighting quite dramatic lighting sometimes it actually is more powerful than if you threw loads of like vibrant colors at it and you just get a bit sort of, it looks great. I mean, I love comics that do that. And when you're in the comic, you quickly get accustomed to it. And then it sort of like doesn't quite have the same effect. Whereas when you've got all these like beautiful noir, black kind of alleys and misty kind of like environments and glowing sort of uh, root pipes and, and all this biotechnology. And then suddenly you get this kind of like blue highlighting something. And I found that the, initially I was putting blue on quite a lot of things. And then I realized that actually the less things I put it on, the more powerful it is and the more, more, more kind of exciting it is. So then you're only really putting it on things that really highlight, enhance the storytelling where you want the eye to sort of definitely kind of rest and things like that. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. One of my most enjoyable projects from, I mean, I absolutely love drawing it. And I think hopefully that comes across in the, 
in the pages. It does. And the trailer that you put together more recent was incredible. I thought that the visuals, the fast paced, even though you're using images and motion and connecting the scenes together, I thought it was really well done. And you're drawing interest into it. You have a long-standing career in comics. You have this amazing comic series with Death Sentence as a whole itself. You're building these amazing worlds. How are you going to push yourself for maybe your next series from an artistic standpoint? Since you've already limited yourself here and you've already done full color, what's that next creative step for you? For a while, I've just been moving more and more towards traditional techniques and kind of, I find the more kind of pare things down and simplify things the more kind of i like them and the more powerful they are and the more um other people like them sort of as far as i've always had a really good response to like my writing and then my art i think is more it's good it's obviously good but there's lots of good artists out there so i don't get as much attention for my art i found that the more i've like just done my own thing and gone back to like traditional techniques you know that's how i started you probably have a lot of people you know drawing on paper and then I used to do a lot of ink and watercolor stuff when I was younger back then trying to do like watercolor comics it was just like madness no one would be interested but now people are a lot more broad-minded about the kind of art styles and the approaches that you can have in a comic they can be like popular I'm just a lot happier you know drawing something on paper with ink and then doing some watercolor and then maybe a bit of airbrush as well the process is really enjoyable. The art looks unique and it looks like something, you know, it looks like my stuff rather than anybody else's stuff. People also, they, they do respond to it these days in ways that they wouldn't have done like 15 years ago. They'd have um, they'd been much more into the traditional comic book kind of styles. So I was doing that anyway. So just the way the whole world and technology has gone with art, I just think... You know, being able to actually draw this stuff is really valuable and it has that kind of human connection that I think everybody wants from art. That's basically why we like art and comics and um, stories. It's because of the sort of human connection that we have between each other. You know, I write something down in a book and you read it and you're like literally reading my thoughts and it's transmitted across time and distance in quite a magical way. And you can really get a connection with someone that way. That's the same with art. You know, if I spend an hour and a half, uh, you know, watercoloring, um, you know, a panel of this comic and then it gets a certain feel that I'm after and then you read it and you, you also feel that emotion. That's the magic of making comics to me. So I'm just much more interested in doing it that way. I felt that way for a long time. I mean, I, 15 years ago, I was working in computer games and I was using computers every day. I was doing a lot of 3D stuff. I was doing animation. I was, you know, there's nothing I can't really do you know, in a computer as far as 3D modeling. But I guess because of that, whenever, whenever I read a comic and I see someone using 3D models and I know they've just drawn over them and everyone's going, wow, that's an amazing angle and a shot. And I'm just thinking, yeah, it is. But also I know it's just a, a trace over a 3D model. For me personally, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't do anything for me. And it's always a little bit dead as well because it's always just like exactly the same each time. And ultimately, that is something that you could just, eventually you'll just be able to take the human out of that and it will just render the comic from the model and you won't have to do anything, you know. The writer can do it or something. So um, it's nothing I've ever been interested in. As soon as I started doing my own comics 10 years ago, I just, I didn't use any 3D models or any kind of computer imagery or any, any kind of computer. Obviously, I used Photoshop. 
I was drawing digitally for a while, so I'm quite happy to draw digitally as long as it's drawing. You know, the last year, really, I've just gone back to not doing any digital drawing and just drawing things with a pencil and a pen and then scanning them in. It's been a sort of slow evolution in that direction. And it just it just really works for me personally. I just I just find it very satisfying. No, that that's amazing to see. And the proof is in the pages right here. The proof is in the, the trailer and these amazing images that, that we're seeing currently and consequences regarding the touchless existence. And, and Yeah, I mean, with that, I guess it's just an extrapolation of how you see the world going. The way like dating on apps has gone, where now it's kind of like weird if you like um, don't date through an app and like actually... I have no idea because I've been married for 15 years, but you get the impression from looking at online social kind of discourse that, you know, if someone tried to chat someone up in the street or in in a bar, that would be deeply, deeply unsettling and unpleasant for everybody involved. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, that was that was just how people dated, you know, so and people were able to navigate that very, very uh, amicably. There's obviously benefits to, to doing it that way. But then you've got to this stage where you basically monetized your relationships, where you can't have a relationship now unless you're paying someone to manage it for you, <laughs> which is not what anyone probably intended at the beginning, but that's the way it's gone. It's just an extrapolation of those kinds of ideas, sort of 100 years in the future. And you're thinking, well, if we keep on monetizing our relationships and we keep on just moving with convenience and market forces as the only driving force in how we're going to interact with each other, we're going to end up in this state where in this kind of cyberpunk world, you can't talk to anyone. You're not legally allowed to talk to anyone unless you've made an online appointment to do so. And one of the reasons why Cram likes being a detective is because he's investigating cases. He has the license and the authority to talk to people they would not normally be able to talk to and you can sort of have a conversation with them and he finds that kind of very healing and sort of um, good for him good for his soul obviously he has to only talk to them about you know the case but I think something that's important is just to have people to be acknowledged in the world it's one of the reasons why people like social media is because they get a sort of an acknowledgement on there. You know, you can see that people are seeing you and they like your posts. You feel heard in a certain level. But I don't think that's quite the same as being seen in real life and outside and in your community and in your actual society. It's very important, I think, for people to acknowledge each other in the street and to be polite to each other and to, you know, especially during something like the pandemic, this kind of thing is brought home where... Certainly in my area, I've always been friendly and talked to a lot of my neighbours. It's always been a good neighbourhood from that point of view. During the pandemic, I went out and I chatted to people that I'd never talked to in my in my neighbourhood, you know, further down the street, you know, and uh, older people who were vulnerable and stuff. And you're sort of asking about, you know, what they need and so on and, and their families and so on and so forth. And then, you know, just out of politeness when you see them again like three years later or something you sort of acknowledge them and you have a little chat i think that's just a very important part of being alive and it's good for your brain it's good for your your body it's good it's just good for everybody to be acknowledged and recognized and to feel part of the world that they live in so i think the consequences of that being outlawed in the future are quite alienating and there's a lot of loneliness and resentment in this uh, future society and that's part of what drives this terrorist organization, the Chrome Roses. The first story in the Death Sentence Cyberpunk universe is called Chrome Roses. And um, we kind of discover through the story what, what that means. It has a few different kind of meanings. There's this terrorist group who are trying to basically blow up 
all this infrastructure that they don't agree with that um, that's forcing humans to sort of live in this kind of way. Cram is ostensibly uh, tasked with finding and as far as the public want, they want them um, executed. And Cram is, is investigating this and he starts to sympathise uh, with a lot of their ideas. So he start, becomes torn between what he's tasked to do as a detective and what he privately agrees with some of the things they're trying to do, though not obviously a lot of their methodologies. You get that kind of nice, nice tension that I think is part of a lot of the good detective stories I've enjoyed over the years um, between the different protagonists and the antagonists and things, things like that. The only thing that the pandemic really stopped for me was the fact that I just didn't get any more you know, robocalls from solicitors. <laughs> <laughs> which was a nice touch to be honest, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it forced us to kind of look into ourselves. It it forced us to reevaluate our lives to a certain extent. It also forced us to figure, you know, are we happy with our current lifestyles? Like when, when three years down the road, have we improved ourselves in some way, shape or form? If we have, then, then wonderful. You're one step better than if you were back at your nine to five job working 40 hours and just hating it. So it gave us a bit of freedom, but it also gave us that isolation. Like you mentioned, it was just something where, how do you want to live your life? You know, you could die the next day. Are you living your best life? And, and it really kind of reset a lot of people's mindsets to what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it highlighted how we're all connected so it doesn't matter what you're doing if your if your goal is purely just to make money for yourself it turns out you can't do that without everybody else <laughs> so so the, literally the world will not function unless everybody is acknowledged as part of the same society and we all need each other to get on so there was a very clear that that, that is a an, an important facet um, that needs to be accounted for when in any kind of capitalist society. So, so um, I'm all for market forces and, and so forth, but there needs to be some acknowledgement that th- none of this actually works unless we recognise that we're all in this together and we're all valuable. So that's an important lesson, I think, for everybody. And that's really how we got through the pandemic, you know, whether it was uh, financial stimulus or whether it was just through going out and physically helping each other. That's how we got through and that's how we were, we were able to get back to, you know, doing the things that we want to do in our lives personally. It's by acknowledging that we have to help each other. That was a, an interesting illustration of, of that. The Kickstarter campaign is currently ongoing. What can we expect from this particular campaign and how has it improved from, say, your past Kickstarter campaign? Well, over the years, I've done a few Kickstarter campaigns and what I've learned is basically to focus everything on the comic and the quality of the comic and then uh, any kind of rewards and extra bonuses kind of all center around making the comic and the artwork, art prints that come with it as well. Just make it all as good quality as possible because ultimately that's what's going to bring, bring people back, the quality of the actual comic book and the art, you know, the everything, just the, the art itself. But then also a lot of effort goes into that. But then also just like the quality of the production of, you know, the paper quality, the printing, the binding, the heavyweight stock, the fine finish on the prints, you know, make it all archival quality so it's going to last and it doesn't crease and all that kind of stuff. It's all focused on that. And you can get a really nice copy of the book, the standard copy, 
which is 15 quid. And then you can get a really special copy, which is really how I envisaged the whole thing in my mind when I started, which is where it's all kind of platinum. So it's all basically, you know, blacks and greys and blues. But then it's got the shiny foil finish, the spotting and the sort of soft lamination. It just has this really kind of like, it suits cyberpunk, you know, it's just a very sort of like nice quality, shiny, slightly metallic looking finish to the cover of the book. That's how I would love every copy to be. But of course, you know, um, that would make it more expensive. So so that's a sort of a, an option you can get sort of in the mid range of the sort of tiers of things you can you can get related to the comic. And then at the very highest tier, you can get an original page of artwork you know and a page from the comic that I've drawn which just reflects the fact that you know I put a lot of effort into those pages and I don't really want to sell them but you know you can have them if you really want them there's all kinds of different um, options kickstarter side of things I don't make gimmicky things because apart from anything else they take a lot of time and focus away from making the comic because you know I write and draw the comic myself but also they're just practically very difficult to ship You've got to go to a lot of time and trouble to ship objects like that. And then sometimes when people try and ship them with the comics, they actually damage the comics, which is just I can't allow. To me, everything is about really high quality packaging as well With when I send them out. So you get a nice, a really nice, uh, flat, good quality um, book, which is the best kind of articulation of what I've tried to make. So and I think that's why people like Kickstarters is they like that personal kind of touch with what is delivered to them, to their door. When it comes to influences, influences are always fun, especially for the various genres that, that we have here. We have cyberpunk, we have film noir, we have murder mysteries. What is the best film or comic from cyberpunk, film noir, and murder mysteries that people should look at before they look at your comic? Well, yeah, there's a question. I don't know. I can only talk about what influenced me into making this really as far as the great films and books comics and stuff that influenced me in making this so firstly of course Blade Runner so with Blade Runner there's no uh, none of the sort of concepts of the world are in this so there's no replicants there's no big corporations there's none of that what there is taken from Blade Runner is just that atmosphere so I love the attention to detail and the mix of the futuristic and the retro kind of detective noir elements that are in Blade Runner and the attention to detail that goes into building the world and also the claustrophobia of it. The massive mistake they made in the first release of Blade Runner at the cinema was they had this scene at the end where they escaped into this green paradise surrounding the city, which was completely nonsensical and totally ruined the whole. And they also said like, oh, and Rachel can live forever. So they kept, they totally they totally blew they totally blew the whole concept of their own film. It was a lot of studio pressure that led to that. But to me, with cyberpunk and a lot of the cyberpunk that I've enjoyed since Blade Runner, I get very frustrated when you, they set up this really cool cyberpunk world and characters, and then they just totally think, "Oh, this is boring," and then they go and do something else halfway through, like they go off to another planet, or you know, they go off to a completely different environment or something. And I'm just like, that to me is not cyberpunk it's essential to have that claustrophobia so there is nowhere else to go the tract is all there is of humanity in the future and the characters have to survive the situation they're in or die trying there's nowhere for them to run to 
and everything within the story and all the rules of the story, they can't be subverted or broken by just going somewhere else. So it, it makes for a very high pressured and intense kind of um, atmosphere and story. So it's like all or nothing. So that's important. Comics wise, Hellboy was a big influence just because of the sort of heavy blacks, the sort of iconography of. So I do put a lot of de- It's an interesting mix because I put an awful lot of detail and a lot of kind of um, shades from sort of light to dark into certain elements of this, which they don't do really in Hellboy. But then I've also got a lot of very bold, you know, iconic kind of imagery in the same way that you get in Hellboy. And uh, Mike Mignola's strength is also is the simplicity of a lot of what he draws and the power of it through the simplicity and the strong sort of shadows. So I've always liked throwing shadows around in, in my work and uh, I'm very comfortable kind of doing that, but it's just really how you render it. So that's an element. But well, then also just the action and the kinetic fun, the fun with kinetic action that you get in Hellboy. Um, that's a big part of this. And also just the way that stories are told at different lengths, you know, um, short and long. I'd say in this one, I weave them together more. So it might seem like, oh, this is a separate case or a separate story. But eventually you'll realise it was all part of the same big story. So that's been a lot of fun kind of putting together. Film noir, I've always loved the lighting in film noir. And from when I first started drawing comics and I used to try and practice, well, how do I draw a face, you know, when I was sort of 18 and I was just trying to figure out how to draw comics, I would look at a lot of film noir because they light, the way they light a face and or a character or a scene is just, it's perfect, it's simple. And uh, you see the way that I light things and the way that I sort of put shadows under things. It's all, all the way through my artwork. It's very influenced by by film noir. But what I didn't do back then was also do this big, bold, heavy black shadows and noirish environments, which obviously I'm doing a lot in this. So it's just kind of, kind of like carrying that forward. But then also you've got like the storytelling in things like, you know, the Maltese Falcon and, and the Big Sleep and all those kind of films. There's a lot there that you can enjoy and take from an update, get a similar vibe whilst uh, doing something new. So that's the trick of it. And then obviously cyberpunk. I'm just very much like a 80s cyberpunk guy as far as, you know, fiction, all the original kind of William Gibson stories, Neuromancer and all that kind of stuff. And they're kind of, I find them quite fascinating because I reread them sort of, I read them a lot when I was younger. I um, reread them quite recently and, it doesn't feel futuristic because a lot of it's so dated, like the whole idea of jacking in and um, the sort of corporations and the, the all the excitement that he has just describing what is basically a very basic internet kind of connection. It almost feels like it's a parallel sort of fantasy world rather than a futuristic environment now, but it still has the same kind of visceral power. And there's a lot of style and atmosphere about the characters and the environments that I like and that I sort of do similar things with whilst, you know, trying to do my own take on it. I just find with cyber, cyberpunk, the 80s angle is very important. You know, with noir, you're using a lot of 30s and 50s kind of iconography with some of the designs and some of the, and like the lighting and, and the characterizations and things. But with um, cyberpunk, you've got to have that 80s kind of vibe. There's no reason nowadays to think that the future would be full of like pipes and cables. But they're essential for cyberpunk. You've got to have pipes and cables and, you've, you know, all kinds of other mysterious gubbins that, you know, doesn't really exist yet, but could exist in the future. And then the way that I kind of like rationalize all that in my mind is like, oh, this is all biotech and they need these kind of like fuels to sort of from the earth and um, 
other different sort of chemical compounds needs to sort of channel all this kind of technology because it's 80s some of it's quite boxy which is quite fun um and just to me that's essential for cyberpunk there's certain visual elements you have to have in cyberpunk and you have to have them other visual elements that are essential to film noir and detective fiction and then like mixing these together in a new way is kind of like what i'm trying to do well monty i do hate to say it, but that ends this particular episode of two geeks talking i want to thank you so much for coming back on the show oh thanks for having me it's great to talk to you and um you're always uh, come up with some great questions and uh honor to be on the show before I let you go, where can we find you? How can we support you? Of course, where is this, this amazing Kickstarter campaign and anything else you'd like to promote? Oh, thanks. My Twitter handle and also on Facebook, on Instagram, Monty Nero, M-O-N-T-Y-N-E-R-O. It's the same name. And on there, in my bio, you can find links to the Kickstarter or, you know, posts with some artwork or some some of the pre-launch backer kit. And also if you just Google Death Sentence Cyberpunk or Montenero on YouTube or on um, Kickstarter, then you'll find the the page that I've set up for, and also the video, which explains more about the, the comic. As well as doing the Cyberpunk thing, there'll also be another regular Death Sentence book out later this year, which will be more like towards the second half of the year. Yeah, I'm very much focused on the, cyberpunk stuff though for the first six months of, of this year and then um we'll uh hopefully um talk again when i've got another book out oh for sure i'll always happy to have you on the show and the worlds that you're building whether it's cyberpunk whether it's liberty whether it's anything else that you decide to create is, is always fascinating and we'll definitely dive more into your writing style as for the next time around as much as i i love your your artwork you are an amazing writer as well too we want to make sure that everyone's aware of that with these amazing comics you've created no problem well that ends this particular episode of two geeks talking you can of course find this interview and of course his past interviews on our website tgtmedia.com or two geeks talking.com that's t-w-o not the number two website's going through a revamp so go to our youtube channel which is youtube.com forward slash tgt media the podcast is back at two geeks talking.podbean.com or just search two geeks talking wherever you listen to your podcasts and as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talking.